you're a fan of the show, we want to hear from you. We've got a short survey for listeners at ilsr.org slash podcast survey. With just a few minutes of your time, you can help shape the future of the Local Energy Rules podcast and qualify to win a $50 gift card to the local business of your choice. We really appreciate your feedback. Head over to ilsr.org slash podcast survey to let us know what you think. And interconnection is the process by which those rooftop solar panels can be plugged in the system safely into the system. Now, we want it all to be done safely, right? It needs to be safely and reliably implemented. But because the utility owns the wires, they have perhaps an interest in minimizing or limiting or making it challenging for new things to plug into that system. So interconnection becomes a really important effort to allow rooftop solar or community solar for that matter to successfully interconnect with the system. Sometimes old rules don't require a fix, but in the electricity business, market rules from last century are impeding the march to cleaner, more affordable energy. Some communities, their residents frustrated by the inability to choose a better option are even considering public takeovers of private utilities. Chris Villarreal, president at Plugged In Strategies and associate fellow at the R Street Institute, joined me in October 2021 to discuss how technological innovation ought to be giving Americans many more choices in their electricity service, and how the rules from last century are holding us back. I'm John Farrell, director of the Energy Democracy Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and this is Local Energy Rules, a bi-weekly podcast sharing powerful stories about local, renewable energy. This interview originally appeared on the Institute's Building Local Power podcast in October 2021. Welcome to another edition of Building Local Power, a podcast hosted by the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm John Farrell, the director of the Energy Democracy Initiative and one of ILSR's two co-directors. And today I'm really excited to be joined by Chris Villarreal. He's the president of Plugged In Strategies. He's a fellow with the R Street Institute, think tank that promotes free markets and limited effective government. He's got experience at two different uh, state public utilities commissions. So he knows a great deal about what we're going to talk about, which is the market structure and the market sector, the electricity market. And if you follow him on Twitter, in addition to excellent information about energy, you will also find out that he is a Baylor University grad, a Kansas City Chiefs fan, uh, and many other things. Chris, thanks so much for joining me on Building Local Power. Thanks, John, for having me. So I feel like I need to start off with knowing that our audience cares about issues about monopoly and concentration by just saying that the electricity sector is almost like this hidden in plain sight monopoly, that we have lots of conversation in our society today, both sides of the aisle about like Facebook's monopoly, especially when they have this big outage. Uh, We've got Amazon sort of dominating digital commerce, but we have electric utilities who are monopolies as a result of public policy. Like we made them into monopolies. And in a lot of cases, people are unhappy with the kinds of service they're getting from these monopolies. So I guess I want to start off with something I think is sort of interesting in that we sort of have a let's swap monopolies campaign being run by a number of folks, you know, whether it's Bernie Sanders, who has been advocating for a public takeover of power generation to accelerate renewable energy. He's talking about doing that at the federal level. You've got cities like Boulder, Colorado, or Chicago, Illinois, who have been talking about trying to take over the electric utility. There's just just been this general upswing of interest in public ownership. And I'm kind of curious, what do you think is motivating communities to consider a public takeover? And do you think that public ownership really is going to solve the issues that they're having with the utilities that they're complaining about? Well, thanks, John. Uh, that's, a, that's an easy question to start with. So I think some of the drivers around the public taking over electric monopolies, investor-owned utility monopolies, is the perception that 
the public can do it quote, better than the investor owned utilities. I think what it really comes down to, of course, is at the end of the day, investor owned utilities have a profit interest, whereas public interest utilities supposedly don't have a profit interest. So if only you removed the interest of shareholders to seek profit, then the utility would be run a lot more efficiently and effectively and, and meet the needs of the people that it's serving. I don't think, of course, it's, it's that simple. I think if you look at existing municipal utilities around the country, so if we started with SMUD, which serves the city of Sacramento and California, there is you know, relatively progressive goals that, that, that SMUD seeks to serve. But at the same time, they have relatively high rate and pretty difficult policies if you want to put solar on your roof. So it's not as easy as if we got rid of the profit mo- motivation that this utility now will just automatically turn around and serve its consumers. That utility still has costs it has to recover. And if you are consuming fewer electrons from that utility, regardless of whether it's a, a, a muni or not, there are still costs that remain unrecovered. And so the utility still has an interest in recovering its cost to serve. A perhaps maybe not exact parallel is several years ago. So I, I, I grew up in California and I moved to Minnesota from California. And California regularly goes through droughts as it, it was doing this year. So when I was living there, it was going through another one of the droughts. And one of the water companies that serves the Bay Area are municipal water companies. And so we went through a drought and there was strong calls for conservation, which was all really good. You know, we need to conserve our water because we don't conserve our water. We're going to run out of water and that's not good for anybody. So we all conserved water. And at the end of the year, the water company then, which is owned by the city, instituted something like a hundred percent rate increase. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? We did our job. We conserved our water. Why are our bills going up? Well, people did such a good job of conserving the water that the utility didn't recover its costs because it does cost money to operate the system. And by not consuming that product, in this case water, uh, the utility undercollected its cost to pay for the operation of its system. And so it had to increase costs the next year in order to recover that uncollected revenue. So even in a public situation, there is still a need for that utility to recover its cost, which means it still wants people to consume its product even, even when we might be trying to conserve it. So it's not so simple to just change ownership. And I think that's something I, I, I'm really grateful for you kind of bringing that perspective to this conversation, because I think a lot, there is that perception that if we move to public ownership, it is going to be a panacea for the issues that folks have and the debates that we're having about accelerating clean energy. So let's talk a little bit about the structure that we have in the market. So we've got this tension between ownership structures, and there are, you know, as we know, over 2,000 utilities across the country that are already municipal utilities. There are most urban areas are served by investor-owned utilities, as you mentioned, that have their private companies, they have shareholders, and then you've got a mix in rural areas of these rural electric cooperatives that were a result of both local organizing and stood up by the federal government during the New Deal era. So one of the things I think is fascinating about the electricity business is that Americans tend to expect that most things they buy are from competitive markets, although as some of ILSR's research shows, that's often less true than we think. Why was it that we have, why, why are we in a situation with electricity markets where we are debating who should own, but still debating around this frame of having monopoly ownership of the electricity system? I'll try not to get, get too dry of the history, though my degree is in history. Sometime long ago, when we first started to build electric, electricity systems, it was determined that getting the capital to build a, build a power plant 
was expensive. And then it was expensive to get the capital to build a transmission system to get the electrons from the generating facility to the consumer. And then it's expensive to build distribution to make sure that everyone has access to electricity and has a line to their house. So it's all really expensive. And the early days, a lot of it was just very small generation, very close to, to consumption to serve electricity. So it was largely in the urban areas because that's where you had economies of scale uh, because you had more consumers in the urban areas than you had in the rural areas so that, that those costs to recover that infrastructure could be collected a lot more quickly uh, if you had more consumers to, to buy electrons from. Then through technical innovation, they were able to move generators uh, farther away from, the, from urban centers and build more power plants and build more transmission lines and build more distribution lines, but it's all really, really expensive to build. And in order to ensure that the entity fronting the cost to build all that had a reasonable expectation to recover all those costs, it was decided to grant them a franchise, which means that they are allowed to sell their product, electricity, within a certain geographical, geographical footprint with the expectation that they'll be able to recover their costs. And that worked pretty well because, like I said, power plants are built, are expensive to build, transmission is expensive to build, distribution is expensive to build. Everything associated with the operation of the electricity system is expensive to build. So then for the better part of 90 years or so, that's how things worked. Then as technological innovation continued to grow, we have 1978 and the passage of the Public Utilities Regulatory Policies Act, which provided incentives now for other types of generation solar, some wind, biomass, what have you, things other than coal and gas and nuclear. What that ended up doing is it allowed new entrants to come into the market, things, people who are not the utility. So now you have some competition trying to show up into, into the industry. And utilities, whether they're investor-owned or not, are monopolies. The monopolies act how the monopolies are going to act, which is it's their territory and they think it's their right to serve their territory under this long-standing practice of them being granted exclusive rights to serve electricity in this region. What this runs up against, however, is the equally important economic principle of cost pressure. And competition is a way in which you encourage pressure upon the cost to serve. So you're right, we can go to different grocery stores, to get products that are being procured from different places or perhaps the same places, depending on the type of product we're getting. And we fly different airlines because you know, we like one better than the other, service better than the other, prices better than the other. So we, can do, we have a lot more competition in that world because the capital costs can be spread across more people than traditionally electric markets can. But with the rise of competition in generation first, then under transmission under FERC Order 1000, New entrants can come in and compete, which if they can do the same service at the same or lower price, then that's good. That lowers costs for everybody without degradation in service. So we have the electric utilities, which for the most part have not been pressured in the same way that other industries have to compete because of our patchwork of rules between the federal government, the state government, the local governments, have really been insulated from competition for a long time, except for 13 or so states that allow retail choice. But what I'm hopeful for, 
and what we're seeing is that with the growth of distributed energy resources like rooftop solar, community solar, and the like, is that consumers, you and I, have more options now available to us if we so choose. We don't, we are, we don't need to rely 100% on the utility to provide us electricity. We have abilities now to put solar on our roof or participate in a community solar garden project, which introduces competition, which is good because now it should be imparting cost pressure onto the incumbent. So, you know, a lot of people will draw the comparison, for example, to the telephone industry, right? So similarly, there was a high cost of capital to build out a phone network to customers. And we had similarly monopoly service for landline phone technology, which for our younger listeners was when there was a wire to your house and you had a phone on the wall and all it did was make phone calls. And obviously cell phones really changed things a lot because all of a sudden there was something that was competitive and didn't rely on that network. And that in some cases is similar to what's going on in the electricity business. But the difference of course, being that the technologies you were talking about, like rooftop solar, community solar, or energy storage, these things are all plugging into that same grid. It's something we actually talk about a lot at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, that self-reliance does not mean self-sufficiency. We're not talking about cutting ourselves off from other folks. We're talking about having the capability to operate on your own, but really preferring to remain interconnected with other people. What's When we talk about the opportunities for some of these technologies to get into the market, to connect to the grid, we're often not seeing it implemented quickly or at all in the electricity business. And it, there's definitely a lot of variation in different states, you know, California or, or New York versus Minnesota or Missouri. Who's at fault there? Like, you know, you mentioned that utilities are you know, weren't prepared necessarily prepared for competition. One would think that there's an opportunity for them to get into this market, uh, to sell people what they want. Why don't they do that, for example? And then if they're not willing to do it, what makes it so hard for, for those competitors who have those different choices to get into the market and to offer them to consumers? Right. I mean, the fun thing about uh, looking at the phones, the phone his, the history of the phone companies is that, yeah, we had one phone company that serves the entire country. And we've got our, the only person we can get the phone the phone from was the phone company as well. But if we look back even beyond that, what the phone company was there to compete against was Telegraph, right? So you had the Telegraph, which was the monopoly. AT and T was the original Telegraph company, and they were the monopoly. And then in comes the phone company as a competitor to the Telegraph, and now no one uses Telegraph. And then the phone company was a monopoly. It got broken up, and then we had wireless. So wireless is a new way to communicate that we didn't need the wire, but we still need a communication network. So the way that we have our electricity market structure now is we have, for investor utilities, they are regulated by the state PUCs. And what that allows, the, what, what that enables is that utility to recover their capital costs plus a rate of return through a captive rate base, which encourages utilities to act in certain ways. That for the most part of the history of, of electricity service was beneficial. It, it allowed everyone to have access to electricity at a reasonable cost, relatively low cost, all things considered. And that's the way it's been done. And what is going on now is that as new competition, as new competitors come in, providing not just generation service, but can provide energy management solutions to consumers through demand response or energy efficiency, or offer other technological solutions that help consumers save money on their bill or provide service back to the system, the way that the electric utility has operated the system is now at risk because that was all stuff they used to do. 
and they are no longer the only one capable of doing it. So who's at fault is not really, it's hard to say because this is a structure we put in place for a good reason a long time ago. And it's probably about time for that structure to evolve in response to technological concerns. That all being said, you know, it's my opinion that the electric network, that is the poles and wires across the system, while historically been used for the delivery of electrons from power plants to consumers, that network is incredibly powerful network that has a tremendous amount of untapped benefits. Because if we were allowed as you and I, as, as consumers to engage with one another through that network, we could expand the power and value of that network beyond just the simple delivery of electrons. There's a whole bunch of new things that, you, that we could do where you and I could sell to each other electrons or megawatts or whatever terminology you want to use, where you and I can engage in, in, in an exchange between us to create mutually beneficial solutions where I have excess electricity and you need electricity and I can offer to you at a price which may be lower than what is otherwise available to you from the utility. So why wouldn't you want to engage in commerce with me? Because my excess electricity is going to go to waste otherwise. And so what we're grappling with now is a system that was designed for a certain type of efficiency now standing in the way of new types of efficiencies that can be collected or realized if the economic motivations of that utility were different. So I wouldn't say anyone's necessarily to blame. I think utilities have an interest in maintaining the status quo and being that provider. I think the regulatory structure is struck is such a way that regulators do not have as much authority as they perhaps they should to really address how the utilities should evolve. And then you have the legislatures who want to get elected and utilities have a lot of money to give to officials to ensure that laws are developed and passed in a way that protects the utilities in ways that may not be as beneficial to you and I compared to the utility itself. So, you know, I'm just thinking about this challenge that we have. What, what I find so fascinating is that we have a marketplace that all of a sudden is much more competitive. And I, I feel like there's probably like a million different examples out there of how this would work, and none of them are quite sufficient to describe how the electricity system is different. But you could take, for example, something like classified ads used to just be in the newspaper, right? And then thanks to the internet, Craigslist allows us to post ads to one another. We don't have to use the newspaper anymore in order to do that. So we can fundamentally change how that system works. Obviously, the newspaper's interest was in maintaining that level, like that communication medium, but they couldn't because the internet was sort of out of their hands. And I think what's so interesting here is you talk about, you know, you and I want to be able to transact, right? Maybe I have energy storage, so you want to be able to buy backup power for me as a neighbor. And you have solar, and I want to be able to store your solar energy on my property in the batteries that I own. Well, I've, the utility still owns this network. And like you said, they're regulated, so they don't own it and can't manage it entirely the way they want. They're subject to regulation. And then, of course, the legislature can influence how that regulation works. But we're... We're sort of held back in a way in the sense that the technologies are allowing us to have a lot more choices all of a sudden. It's like the shopping options are there. People can go out and find things, but the utility is, and, and the regulators still have a great deal power over how the system works, and those rules don't always allow us to move as quickly as we might like or to do the things that we might like. So right now, living in Minnesota, 
if we if we were neighbors, I have no way that I could actually be buying solar energy from you in a sort of approved way. You know, maybe we have some sort of Bitcoin blockchain under the table transaction going on that is very clever, but it wouldn't be something that we could do through that system. Let's touch on a couple things here. The first thing I'm thinking about is a tweet I saw from you yesterday about the role of regulators. And you had a really interesting mention about reading the omnivores dilemma. So I'd like you to share about that because I think it's interesting in terms of thinking about the role of regulation over this sector. And then let's try to get back into and talking about what what we think could be done a little differently. So yeah, could you share that what that tweet was that you had about reading Michael Pollan's omnivores dilemma and, and how it kind of opened your mind to a different way of thinking about how we regulate big industries? Sure. So the word dilemma, you know, you'll see those lists of where like the five, what are the five books that change your life the most? And in my mind, I'm the word dilemma is one of those top two books in my, in my list that changed my life the most. In a couple of sections in the book, Michael Pollan and I'm the word dilemma is Michael Pollan is a writer in, in Berkeley who tries to follow five different meals that he's having and from growing, slaughtering to consuming. And what's the, what's the, the pathway to, to the food cycle? from getting from point A to point B to his dinner table, to his plate. And in one of the examples, and I think it comes up twice, but I'll focus on this one. In one of the examples he gives is talking about organics and how organic definitions came about. Because there was, um, again, historically, small farms that did things on their own that then sold at farmer's markets. Some of them were organic, some of them probably used pesticides, but it's, it's the point being that you would go to farmers markets and you had some relationship with, with the market. And then over time, the large industrial food companies came in and saw that the term organic had a, a meaning among the public. That if you saw the word organic, then that meant something, you meant, it meant that that food was better grown, that that was better for you. And in an effort to ensure that the word organic meant the same thing, you needed rules, you needed regulation to determine what did the word organic mean? It, how things were grown, how things were processed, what needed to be done to ensure that this food was actually organic. And so that resulted in regulations being written by the regulator, the federal regulator. Now, industrial farms who have a lot of money have a lot of availability to go and spend money to lobby legislators and regulators on how to define terms. The small farmer's market farmer, who's just him and his family growing radishes or beets or growing beef or what have you, they're busy 24-7 running the farm. They don't have the ability to go and participate in proceedings before the federal, uh, for the Food and Drug Administration or the USDA. And so as a result, the companies that have the money and the time and the influence are the ones who then write the regulation. And they're able to write the regulation in a way that benefits them because they have the money and the ability to meet the regulations. So now, in order to get organic, you have to go through a certification process. And now you have a small farmer who isn't making a lot of money generally over the course of the year. In order to be organic, now has to jump through a whole series of hoops that were designed by the, by the large food companies who were participating in the development of the rule because they have the money and capability to do that, which then means that most of the organics, at least for some period of time, we're all largely done by large food companies, not necessarily by the small market that you are most, most likely wanting to, to buy from. So whether you're growing lettuce, it means you have to do a bunch of stuff. The other example I most remember from the book 
dealt with raising beef, right? If you want to have organic beef, it had to go through a certain, it had to have a certain food and it had to be processed in a certain way. And that required refrigeration and big equipment to, in, to dealing with how, how, how you process the animal. And again, if you are raising a hundred heads of beef and you have to have a refrigerated system that is at a certain specification level, you don't have the money to invest in that. But the large food companies have the money to invest in it. So reading that story and just seeing how large companies are able to manipulate regulation in a way to protect themselves from competition, especially from new and smaller entrants, really opened my eyes into how that works also in the electricity world, or the world that, that you and I are talking about, because utilities are really big. They have a lot of money. Most of it is rate-based because we all like the service they provide us, electricity. Whether they provide it well enough is, is a different question. But they have the influence at the, at the regulatory level to participate in all the proceedings that are open for any state commission uh, compared to smaller, smaller companies like solar companies or storage companies or anyone who wants to get into the marketplace. They have far less resources available to them. So they have to pick and choose the things they want to participate in, whereas utilities are allowed to participate in all of the proceedings. So all the proceedings that have rules, they are participants in. And then they are able to develop the rules and policies in a way that benefits them because commissions can only act upon things that are in the records. It's showing up and participating in proceedings is how you influence the proceeding. And they're able to participate in all the proceedings and craft rules and policies to ways that benefit them and not necessarily to the benefit of the new entrants, new opportunities and new services. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we explore a little-known concept called right of first refusal that utilities use to stiff-arm competition. We talk about access to grid data and also how we can rethink utilities as network operators instead of owners. You're listening to a Local Energy Rules interview with Chris Villarreal, president of Plugged In Strategies and associate fellow at the R Street Institute. Hey, thanks for listening to Local Energy Rules. If you've made it this far, you're obviously a fan and we could use your help for just two minutes. As you've probably noticed, we don't have any corporate sponsors or ads for any of our podcasts. The reason is that our mission at ILSR is to reinvigorate democracy by decentralizing economic power. Instead, we rely on you, our listeners. Your donations not only underwrite this podcast, but also help us produce all of the research and resources that we make available on our website and all of the technical assistance we provide to grassroots organizations. Every year, ILSR's small staff helps hundreds of communities challenge monopoly power directly and rebuild their local economies. So please take a minute and go to ILSR.org and click on the Donate button. And if making a donation isn't something you can do, please consider helping us in other ways. You can help other folks find this podcast by telling them about it or by giving it a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The more ratings from listeners like you, the more folks can find this podcast and ILSR's other podcasts, Community Broadband Bits, and Building Local Power. Thanks again for listening. Now, back to the program. So you're, you know, pretty intimately familiar with a few ways that utilities can exert their monopoly power to stave off competitive pressures. We've talked about a couple already. There's the fact that as captive customers to the utility, they tend to have money available that they can use to influence the legislative process, whether by donating to candidates or having lobbyists. As you just mentioned with the Public Utilities Commission, decisions are made by 
based on who can show up and participate in the proceedings. Utilities have the resources to participate in everything that goes on there. In fact, they're often compelled to participate so they can use the money that we have to hire their regulatory analysts and folks that will show up to do that. There's also some, I think, more hidden things, one of which I'll talk about in a minute about plugging into the grid, like with those rooftop solar systems. But I want a chance to elevate something that you talk about on Twitter, among Energy Twitter, and hopefully we can bring it down to a level where most other folks can understand it. But it's it's abbreviated ROFR, or Right of First Refusal. And I think it's important for people to understand because it can help explain in part why things like recent events, like Hurricane Ida, left so many folks in Louisiana without power for so long, that there's some connection here between how the rules are written and how utilities behave then, and the fact that we actually then suffer more significant impacts from power outages or in terms of the cost of our energy. So can you explain ROFR? And I'm asking this as someone who's in this industry, looking for a way that I can more simply explain to people how this works and why it's a problem. Ah, I will do my best. So ROFR is an example of things that our industry suffers a lot from, which is acronyms. So ROFR is is a legal term. It stands for right of first refusal. And what that largely means is that there's a need to build a new transmission system, new transmission line. And because the utility is already the incumbent who serves that region, they have the right of first refusal to build that new line, regardless, sort of regardless of the cost. What that means is that we up here in, in the Excel territory, if, if there's identified a need to build a new transmission line that is inside the region or cuts across the region, Whatever applies to the service territory of Excel, any new transmission line, Excel has the exclusive ability to determine that they are the ones that are allowed to build it before anybody else can come in and build it. Now, the challenge with that is, I mentioned earlier, FERC Order 1000 declared largely transmission construction is a competitive service. And required the removal of right of first refusal language that were existing in RTO tariffs. So the, the, the RTO that serves our region, the Midwest, the Mid-Continent Independence System Operator, previously had right of first refusal laws in their tariffs. FERC said you have to get rid of those. Those are anti-competitive. They are protecting the monopoly. And Order 1000 says we need competition because it's not a competitive resource. So we want new entrants to come in to compete against the utilities to the construction of new transmission because we need new transmission in, uh, in our area because there are a lot of wind. Okay, so shortly after Order 1000 was passed, some utility got passed very quickly thereafter in the, in the Minnesota State Legislature, a bill taking the ROFR language that was previously declared anti-competitive and put into the Minnesota State Statute so now the utilities in Minnesota all have right of first refusal protection um, for new transmission projects across the state. Let me just cut in real quick here to summarize for people who aren't necessarily familiar with all these terms here. So previously, decades ago, if there's a transmission line being built, the utility that's the monopoly gets to build it. They're making all the decisions. FERC issues this Order 1000, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. So the federal regulator says, actually, power transmission, those big trend, you know, high-voltage lines you see in your highways, that's competitive now. Everybody should be able to participate. And they said in the places across the country where we have organized markets, wholesale energy markets, you have to remove those rules that were preventing people from bringing in competitive power line construction. 
And right after that happened, the utility went running to the legislature, at least in Minnesota and in some other states, and said, we want to get that power back to block out competition. And they got it. So it's a law on the books now that despite the federal regulators' efforts, they still are retaining this right of first refusal. Yes. And there are, I guess, about seven states who all have right of first refusal language in their state laws, largely in the Midwest. So Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, and Texas all have right of first refusal laws on the books in their states. Now, what that means then is because of this right of first, right of first refusal language that's in state statute now, it becomes incredibly difficult for competition to take hold in these states for the construction of new transmission lines. In fact, it sort of exacerbates regional planning difficulties because if you had a, if, if you had a developer, a competitive developer who wanted to build a line from you know, North Dakota through Minnesota to Wisconsin down to Illinois, because North Dakota and Minnesota have right of, right of first refusal laws, each one of those individual utility territories that they go through, each individual utility could say, no, we, we have the right of first refusal to build a new transmission line. So what ends up happening then, and we sort of saw this in the CapEx 2020 project, is rather than have one long line being built, we had multiple little lines being built from service territory to service territory to service territory in order to protect their right of first refusal uh, responsibilities. And so as it applies now to what happened in Louisiana, Intergy also has right of, right of first refusal language in their Texas territory. And what that means is that new transmission is very difficult to build unless it's being built by the utility. So the utility down there, Intergy, has operated in such a way to uh, limit the amount of transmission that can be built, limit the amount of new generation that can be built, and limit limited entrance to any new competitive pr uh, provider, be it building a new generation or building a new transmission, and was, and then was able to do so in such a way to basically continue to underbuild its system in a way that, that made their system a lot more fragile in response to weather events, uh, like what happened with Hurricane Ida, where they didn't have sufficient enough, they didn't have enough generation, they didn't have enough transmission, and so they had areas of New Orleans that were out of power for weeks, if not over months, because they didn't, they didn't have enough infrastructure to get the power back onto those areas because they had been chronically underbuilding their system in a way that at one level was designed solely to keep out competition. And because their focus was so much on keeping out competition, they then didn't actually build up the system they needed to to respond to system emergencies and weather events. I remember seeing one analysis of it uh, talking about as well that one way that they dealt with this issue of competition was that they would, the threshold for the competitive market is above a certain voltage. So if you build a very high power transmission line, which can move a lot of electricity, it would be subject to competitive rules. But if it was under a certain threshold, it wouldn't be. So they built lots of lower power lines which were not as effective at keeping the system reliable as the higher power ones might have been in terms of the amount of capacity they had in order to avoid that competitive pressure. And it actually reminds me, speaking of monopolies, of I think it was Amazon and that has their delivery vans that they were buying. And there are federal commercial trucking regulations that apply to trucks above a certain size. And so Amazon deliberately undersized their delivery vehicles to fall right under that threshold of regulation. 
And so there is a lot of, and, you know, perfectly legal, obviously, but yet it ends up being this perverse outcome where customers can potentially be underserved. Maybe in the case of Amazon, those vehicles are less safe to operate because they're still very large, but they throw, fall right into that threshold. In the case of the transmission here with Louisiana, you had lots of customers in New Orleans out of power for a lot longer than they needed to be because Entergy was interested in protecting its monopoly more than serving its customers effectively. I want to pivot and talk about another way that this impacts us, especially because it's around this issue of choice, individual consumer choice. So we talked earlier about, you know, you and I could have solar on our rooftop. We could have batteries in our garage. We have the opportunity to participate in the market. And we've been processing results of a survey that we've been doing of solar developers about the barriers they face in helping customers do rooftop and community solar. So two of these crucial technologies that allow people to choose to rely less on the utility I'm just curious, you know, I'm going to phrase it this way. What do you imagine that we might find in terms of barriers that are described around plugging those systems into the grid? Uh, I suspect the the biggest barrier will be interconnect, things associated with interconnection. And interconnection is the process by which those rooftop solar panels can be plugged in the system safely into the system. Now, we want it all to be done safely, right? It needs to be safely and reliably implemented. But because the utility owns the wires, they have perhaps an interest in minimizing or limiting or making it challenging for new things to plug into that system. So interconnection becomes a really important effort to allow rooftop solar or community solar for that matter to successfully interconnect with the system. Utilities raise a whole slew of barriers into that marketplace that, that makes it challenging for systems to interconnect, especially larger systems. They'll raise things like technical constraints or there's not available capacity at that area to put new solar in, which then delays and delays the, the development of those projects and increases the cost. Now, ways to address that would be to make more information about the system available to the public or at least developers, so that developers knew where are areas across the territory that would have a, high, a greater likelihood of successfully interconnecting, interconnecting. But that transparency means that the public has more information about the distribution system. And again, for the better part of 100 years, no one has asked the utility to talk about that. It's always been, utility, your job is to keep the lights on and maintain the distribution system. You do what you need to do, and we will largely give you cost recovery. But now that we have competition and new entrants coming into for the last realm of distribution monopoly service, the distribution system, there is quite a, an effort underway by the utility to minimize how much information they have to make available to the public because this is their last, it's, it's their last batch of, it's the last area that has been there for a long time. And by providing more information to the public, they're introducing new parties to provide service that historically they've been the only one to provide. That'd be my guess. The interconnection is going to be the first one. It's going to be the, it's going to be the biggest one you're going to hear from, hear about. Yeah. More than 75% of our survey respondents had that as their number one issue in terms <laughs> of what the problem is. And it is, I, I think it's important to help explain too. So when we talk about this monopoly challenge, or the like grid ownership challenge that's going on in the utility sector. You mentioned earlier, you know, it doesn't even matter what 
kind of utility, what ownership structure we have, right? The utilities are trying to recover their cost of service. And as other entrants come into the market, they are, of course, looking for some market share. They're going to take some of the revenue that that utility would have. It's a particular problem for investor-owned utilities, of course, because they have shareholders and they're, you know, they're determined to make sure that they're bringing a benefit to their shareholders as they're legally obligated to do. And the rules of the system really encourage them to act in this way as well, too. That, I think that's the other thing that I find most helpful to explain to people is that it's not that utilities are necessarily bad actors, although they certainly don't act in good faith from time to time, uh, as you and I have both seen. But they, they're they rewarded for doing this in the sense that the incentives that they often have because of the way that they can make money, in the case of an investor-owned utility, are to keep out competition. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And and I guess maybe what would be helpful here is, are there other industries that we can learn from as we think about how to confront that challenge where maybe where competition did end up flourishing to the benefit of everybody because we changed the rules, changed the incentives? You know, is there a good example out there of how we could do this differently? So um, I'll have to think about that last one, but you're right. The, the rules that we have in place today encourage the utilities to act the way they act. There are other options that are being discussed across the country, something like performance-based rate making, where you take a portion of their revenue requirement or the, the, what they're allowed to, to recover through rates and make that subject to performance. Uh, so if they perform in certain ways as the regulators decide, then they not only get that money, but they also get an incentive on top of it. So they get their revenue requirement plus some incentive. And then the flip side is that if they perform worse, then they might have a penalty on top of not earning that money. And that would be for things like more clean energy or more energy efficiency, things, outcomes that we want to see from our electricity system. Right. Energy efficiency is one that has pretty much been in place for decades now. That's the type of performance-based incentive that that we've been using. To me... The way to keep this going forward is to really rethink the way that the distribution system and the, and the utility itself earns money. And that is by turning it into thinking about it more as a network where they become a network operator rather than just the provider of electricity. Because as we get more and more solar on the system, as more electric vehicles come on the system, as we basically just get more services and resources that are going to show up at the end of the system, at urbanized houses, at our places of work, what have you, the value of the grid as a network is going to expand. And that means their opportunity to recover costs rather than on a per kilowatt hour basis like we pay in our bill today, you could see access fees, which I suspect you have your feelings about access fees. But there are other ways that the utility could, could be recovering their costs other than through kilowatt hour usage. So if we think about, um, this is always a bad analogy, but I think it's useful, you know, our cell phones, right? So our cell phone is on a certain network, mine's on Verizon's network. So I go to the Verizon store and I buy a phone, but the phone is not a Verizon phone, right? It's mine's Motorola or you buy Apple and then Apple and Motorola. So Apple has their system and uh, mine's an Android, so I'm on the Google system. So even though it's using the network of Verizon as my provider, I'm also accessing the network that the services that, that Android is providing me. So now uh, I pay my one, one month of fee to Verizon, and then I get my phone, 
And then anything else I want to do on my phone, I pay basically to Android or to somebody else. And so now I'm leveraging the power of the network, the wireless network, to do a whole bunch of other things that sit on top of it. And that's one way that I can conceive of the electricity system evolving is by turning it into a network where you and I or whoever can engage in commerce with one another by offering balancing. Like we can balance our systems against each other, right? Which would be a benefit to the system because it increased the efficiency of the system. It would increase the, the, the network value because now we have more and more people connected to the system. And, and I discuss it that way because the, the option, the, uh, the alternative is we don't need this network. Why do we need electric utility? We need to do it all ourselves. So let's just create a bunch of, of islanded microgrids that aren't connected to anybody else. And I think that is not an economically efficient way to think about the system because now you have a bunch of islands that are not operating with each other. So we're losing the value of the network. So it's great that if your neighborhood is able to island in response to emergency, that's not the issue. The issue is physically disconnecting from each other so that if we are physically disconnecting, you know, I'm in Eden Prairie and you're in Minneapolis. If I can't have an interconnection with you, John, then I can't sell you my product and you can't buy mine to create a more efficient optimized system. Because we have power in the network, you and I are able to talk over this medium. We are able to, you know, talk over our, over the over the internet. And thinking about the utilities of the network and how do we transition management to conceptualize new earnings opportunities if one, they get out of the way of innovation, and two, figure out ways to leverage the innovation that private actors or you and I are willing to pay for, that can unleash a lot more value out of the system at a lower cost as we're now able to leverage and make the system more efficient because we are going to need greater amounts of flexibility and anything that you or I or any anyone who's listening can do on their own system, on their own, at their own location, you have value that probably is not being captured. And if only we had the ability to capture that value organically and societally, I think that's where we get a lot more value out of the system. And I think that's where a future for the electricity system could go. So this brings me in mind of a question, which I imagine is sort of a big one for what I anticipate will be the last question I ask you here, Chris, but it's sort of gets at this network value thing. Cause I'm thinking about this sort of two different ways right now. There's two examples of networks I'm thinking of that highlight like different routes we could go here. One would be the network of roads we have. So I find it useful sometimes to explain to people like, you know, the road network is largely a public network. It's paid for through taxes and through user fees. And it essentially has open access, right? Like, and package delivery is what I always like to use as an example, right? There's FedEx, there's UPS, there's DHL, there's the postal service. They're all out there using this network. There's rules, there's speed limits, there's signage, there's stop signs. There's all sorts of things about how you use the network. There's rules for vehicles and their size and weight and all of that kind of stuff. But everybody can use that and transact in whatever way they want. And I think what's interesting is, that, and that's a public network, right? So it is generally non-discriminatory, right. although the way we pay for it may not be perfectly equal between all of the different users because of the structure of the mix between user fees and taxes. And then in contrast, we have, and this is obviously something that we're sort of like litigating in public space right now, is Amazon's commerce network, where it's a private network, but you know, small businesses, large businesses feel compelled to sell their products on Amazon to participate in their market. 
And Amazon has taken advantage of that to sometimes set rules that are discriminatory, you know, that say, well, if you want to use our network, you need to put your stuff in our warehouses, you need to use our shipping services, etc. And so they're sort of raising the rents. And you talked about access fees earlier. What makes me nervous about the idea of keeping this as a private network is that it could allow the utility to continue to sort of extract monopoly rents on participants in the same way that they've been making it difficult to get into the market now by, you know, keeping information to themselves. But it's not a given, right? Like just because it's public doesn't mean it's going to be run well. Just because it's private doesn't mean it's going to be run poorly. It really all is in the rules. And if you had it, I guess what I'm curious about is if you had a choice, how would you do it? Or how would you solve that? Or like, what, what are the elements that are crucial to us thinking about like how do we create that network that has the best opportunity to capture all of that uncaptured value from customers and that prevents big players from taking advantage of everybody else? I think that really has been the question that has been trying that that this industry has been trying to address prior since um, the first connection was connected to a house is how do we best regulate the system especially now going forward with increasing amounts of, of new entrants at the home level. And it's a question that, that I've been thinking about a lot. The one way to help address that, of course, is through regulation, which is why we have regulators to do all this stuff, which is also imperfect because it, unless it's owned by the government, like roads arguably are, and everyone has access to it, and, and the federal government and the state government and the local governments all issue the rules as to how we use it. And then you have the private network, as you pointed out, where Amazon, where there's little regulation over how it's worked, what's that middle ground? That middle ground probably is regulation. But I think it's important to note that so we have regulation. And regulation provides a really valuable opportunity for the public to participate in ways on how that network can operate. But the they need to be able to enforce that open access, that equitable open access, so that everyone who wants to have access to that system is able to access it equitably and fairly. And I think that's really the challenge going forward is how do you ensure that equi equitable and fair access to the network so that the owner of the network is not extracting rents beyond what they should be and that they are not favoring affiliates or other preferred actors over their network. And I think that's really the challenge for regulation is to balance that. One of the things I, that I want to make clear from you know what I say on Twitter is that when I talk about the market and if we only had better market access, I don't mean to equate market with no regulation. I think that's an alt, that's a that's a misnomer. So how does the role of the regulator as it applies to overseeing electric system evolve along with it? And I think that might be the bigger challenge is ensuring that the regular the pace of regulation changes in such a way that these network effects and network benefits are enabled and are not just simply repackaged from old ways of regulating, putting the old ways of regulating on top of new systems. And how we address that, I think, is going to be the bigger challenge than how do we get utilities to evolve with it. Because utilities will evolve. It's in their interest to evolve. But whether the regulator evolves along with it to ensure fair and equitable and open access to these systems, I think that's going to be a bigger challenge. And that's where groups need to come together to ensure that the regulators that get appointed to these positions understand the transition and are prepared to evolve along with it. I was going to add 
that there are perverse incentives all over the place, especially in tax codes, right? So two examples. One, my, my mom was a 411 operator for Pacific Bell, and her keyboard was not a QWERTY keyboard. It was an ABC keyboard. The QWERTY keyboard got paid, was categorized as a secretary at a certain at a certain pay rate, pay rate, and Pacific Bell didn't want to pay all their 411 operators at the secretary rate, so they created a new keyboard they could categorize them as a different worker class. The second example, a decade ago, so I was reading an article about delivery trucks. The majority of delivery trucks, like the big Mercedes van delivery trucks, at least 10 years ago, because of the way tariffs are written, they actually came to the U.S. as passenger vans because passenger vans were taxed at a lower rate than the uh, delivery trucks. So the companies would buy all these passenger vans Bring in the United States, they got off the boat, they were, they were taxed to pay the tariff, and then they were driven like a mile to the next place, and all of the seats were ripped out and turned into delivery trucks. Because Mercedes was building all these big white vans, they were all passenger, they were all passenger vans in Europe, but in the U.S., they were great delivery trucks, but because passenger vans were taxed at a lower rate, they all came to there, and it was worth the effort to just remove all the seats and turn them into, into delivery trucks. They're all, they're, like I said, perverse incentives are all over the place. And you know, how you feel about that, I guess, depends on the issue that you're interested in. Yeah. I mean, it's a good reminder, though, I think, no matter what our good intentions are from a legislative or a regulatory perspective, it's hard to avoid doing that sometimes because people are going to innovate and be creative and they're going to notice that variance in tax rate or they're going to notice <laughs> that qualification regarding keyboards and they're going to mess with it if there's an incentive to do that. Hard for me to imagine that the productivity impact of sticking someone on an ABC keyboard as a supporters to a QWERTY keyboard was worth it, but that's hilarious. Yeah, I don't know. There's a whole room full of foreign operators all on ABC keyboards. I even know they made those. My goodness. I just want to thank you a lot for taking the time to chat with me about utility platforms and regulation and ROFR. I'm hopeful that we can put that little segment about Rofer all over the internet so people understand what's going on with that. It's really interesting to delve into all these little hidden corners of this sort of missing monopoly conversation and to think about how we could, with the right regulators, as you say, restructure this market to work a little bit better for everybody. So thanks again for joining me for this conversation. Anytime, John. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Local Energy Rules with Chris Villarreal, President at Plugged In Strategies and Associate Fellow at the R Street Institute, discussing the need for market reforms to allow electricity customers to take advantage of rooftop solar and other technological innovations in clean energy. On the show page, look for links to ILSR's coverage of PERPA, the federal government's original competition policy, our recently released solar developer survey, and the omnivore's dilemma. On our website, you can also find ILSR's interactive community power map showing the states with the best market rules for encouraging individual and collective action for clean energy. Hey, a quick reminder that you can win a $50 gift card by sharing your thoughts about the show. Head to ilsr.org slash podcast survey and let us know what you think. That's ilsr.org slash podcast survey. Local Energy Rules is produced by myself and Maria McCoy with editing provided by audio engineer Drew Birschbach. Tune back into Local Energy Rules every two weeks to hear more powerful stories of communities taking on concentrated power to transform the energy system. Until next time, keep your energy local, and thanks for listening.